0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast Story and Fiction, produced by Story and Literary This is Episode 4 of Tour of Duty, read by the author William H. Coles. Thanks for listening. Part 4, Chapter 20 Toussaint, 1965, Miles. On a Wednesday in April 1965, Miles went for his twice a week French lesson with Madame Levine at the Boulangerie. She sat on a table with two chairs in an upstairs storage room surrounded by shelves with metal molds, baking pans, bowls, dishes, lidded jars, some with labels, sacks of flour, tins of sugar stacked in a corner where a window looked out onto the street. Sit, she said in French. "'bypassing her usual pleasant greeting and without looking up. "'Today we will discuss General de Gaulle's La discorde l'ennemie "'She looked up with a tenuous smile. "'Her face flushed. "'Her eyes wet with tears. "'Miles remained standing, anxious to know what was bothering her. "'He'd never seen her like this. "'What's wrong, madame?' he asked. "'It's really nothing.' Please sit. We will start, she said. Is there anything I can do? She paused for many seconds. Please, madame, he said. She sighed. It is malady from my family, monsieur. The daughter of my cousin is extremely ill. I worry there is nothing to do. How old is she? She has eleven years. Is she in the hospital? She is at home. Does she have a fever? She is very hot to touch. How do you say, groggy? And she coughs much. Has it just come on? Oh no, more than a week. D- does she have a doctor? Oh yes, he is doctor of the family for many years. Is she getting better? This morning my cousin called and said she is hard to wake up. I have dread. How is she being treated? She'd take medicine. Do you know what? The usual for cough and fever? I am worried, madame. Please call to find out what she's taking. Madame hesitated, but again looked at Miles earnestly with his silent pleading to help. I will call. The phone is downstairs. She went downstairs, and she called her cousin, Monsieur Toussaint, the father of the sick girl. She spoke urgently in French, too fast for Miles to follow. She has given Brionia and Antimonium to Tartum, she said to Miles. May I talk to him? Monsieur Toussaint spoke English well. Miles confirmed the treatment, asked about symptoms, past history, and allergies, and he placed his hand over the phone mouthpiece. She is very sick, madame. If I could examine her, suggest treatment. Please tell him I am not licensed in France, only the United States, but that I am fully trained at the best American hospitals. Madame discussed Miles' proposal with her cousin, the conversation turned animated for a few seconds, then calmed. He was not sure, but I convinced him, Madame said. He said to come as soon as you are available. We should go now, Miles said. They live near Tours. We should hurry then. Miles drove to the hospital to get medicines before departing. The majority of French people believed and relied on homeopathic medicine, even so, Miles was sure the girl might be treated with remedies that probably had little or no effect for a serious condition in an hour and thirty-five minutes. they were at the Toussaint home. Madame Levine's cousins were an upper madame Levine's cousins were an upper-class family who lived in sur cher near Tours in a modest chateau near the Cher River. Period French 18th and 19th century antiques furnished the home. Miles paused at the size of the antique four-poster canopy bed that diminished the slender girl patient named Clementine. The Toussaint family, father and mother, Clementine's older sisters, Manon and Sophie, and a housekeeper gathered around, silent with concern. As Miles made his evaluation, Droplets of perspiration speckled Clementine's forehead. A lusterless sheen dimmed the details of her brown eyes. Miles asked Madame Toussaint to help hold Clementine in a sitting position as he listened with his stethoscope to Clementine's chest. The breath sounds in the lower lobe of the right lung were absent, replaced by crackles and wheezes. Her productive cough sounded dry and scratchy. She had a viral pneumonia with secondary bacterial infection, and there was no doubt her medicines had worsened her condition. Madame Levine translated as Miles spoke in English to the family. He emphasized the severity and the danger of her pneumonia. He added the urgency to stop Clementine's medicines. Monsieur Toussaint looked at each member of his family for their approval, and, after a pause, he agreed. But with noticeable doubt, of the correctness of his decision. Madame Levine quickly thanked Miles. The family remained silent, clearly anxious about the wisdom of the change in treatment. Clementine's temperature decreased within three hours. She smiled for the first time. Miles said he would return the day after next to examine and gave instructions for reaching him if needed before then. There were no objections. Madame Levine stayed with the family, and Miles drove back to Chateauroux, thankful that Clementine was improving. For five days, in the evenings after work, he drove the hour and 45 minutes each way to the Toussaint's house to monitor Clementine's progress. After a week, as Miles checked her, Clementine smiled at him. Her older sisters, Manon and Sophie, and Madame Levine, were again by the bedside. She is better, doctor. No? Manon asked. Clementine's temperature was normal, and her breathing had improved. Her right lung was still slightly congested, but breath sounds were sharper. You fly an airplane? Clementine asked in French. My my cousin told her you were an American, army du lair, her mother said. "'You fly, yes?' Clementine persisted to Miles. "'Clementine,' her mother cautioned. Miles smiled to indicate he didn't mind Clementine's questions. "'I do fly very big airplanes,' he said in the best French he could muster. "'But best of all, I'm learning to fly a small private plane by myself.' "'Oh, will you take me for a ride, Monsieur Sivoplie? "'I would love to, when you are completely well.' And when I'm all trained and have my license, we'll do it. Clementine coughed before she smiled with pleasure. Sophie requested instructions for care. After explaining, Miles gave her medicines and gave another injection of antibiotic to Clementine. You speak English with such perfection, he said to Sophie. I only hope I can do as well in French someday. Already you speak very well, Sophie said. "'Madame Levine is a very good teacher, "'but I must have more practice to gain confidence. "'Well, she is known for her skills, "'and you can practice with me and the family. "'How did you learn English?' "'We are taught in school, "'and I spent four years in England at Oxford. "'What was your major? "'I studied art history. "'I hope to teach at university. "'Here?' "'It is possible.' but I want to learn first to create my own art. Miles said he admired her career. As Miles arranged his medical bag, Sophie thanked him for his treatment. Madame Levine, relieved at Clementine's progress, asked if she could return to Chateauroux with Miles. Of course, he said. Madame Levine remained rigid with her hands clasped as they began the drive back to Chateauroux. Miles drove with extra caution, and she seemed to relax. Thank you for what you did for Clementine, she said. She's special. You saved her life. We all believe that. I was worried about her medicines. Not only that they may not have value, but they may have been ineffectual and prevented necessary treatments. The doctor is a longtime family friend. He was upset in the beginning but he became very supportive. He admitted the value of having you. They rode in silence for a while. Thank you, madame, Miles said. You have a wonderful family. They like you, she said. They were lost in their own thoughts for the remainder of the trip. As madame left the car at her house, she paused. I know they will invite you to Nice for the holidays, Mardi Gras. They have a house that is in the family. I hope you'll be able to go. I'll be sure to make time to get away, Miles said.
1: Chapter 21
0: Talents 1965 Miles Three weeks later, Miles returned with Madame Levine to the Toussaint Chateau to complete a follow-up examination. Manon met them as they emerged from the car. Dr. Ballard, Manon said, come with me to the library. Clementine has a surprise for you. Miles and Madame followed Manon to the library. There were two chairs positioned for them near a grand piano. The family and the housekeeper gathered round behind them as they took their seats. Clementine entered with a measured grace mounted a small rectangular platform "'near the piano a few yards in front of the guested family. "'She wore a short-sleeved white dress trimmed in lace "'with a red sash at her waist "'and patent-leather red Mary Janes "'with ruffled, turn-cuff white socks. "'Her golden hair had been combed and held back with a white ribbon. "'Still, errant hair strands drifted down to cover her face,' which she swept back at intervals, smiling politely. She began with a nod of the head bow directly to the audience, and then recited Le Renard et le Copeau by Jean de La Fontaine. The fox and the crow, she said in English. Miles did not know the story, but with Clementine's animated and polished French delivery, he was able to follow the gist. Master Crow perched on the highest branch of a small tree and held a piece of cheese in his beak that he had stolen from the ledge of an open kitchen window. The wise and crafty Master Fox loved cheese and was attracted by the smell. He quickly devised a plan. "'Well, hello, Mr. Crow,' the fox said. "'How pretty you are. You seem beautiful to me.' The crow preened with pride." "'Clementine frowned with displeasure. "'I do not lie,' continued the fox. "'If your voice is like your plumage, "'you are the phoenix of all the inhabitants of these woods.' "'With these words,' "'Clementine tapped her temples with pointed index fingers "'to emphasize the clever intelligence of the fox. "'Crow is overjoyed. "'To show off his beautiful voice, he opens his beak wide.' Clementine held her arms out, palms together and pulled them apart, one up and the other down, like the crow opening his beak to sing. "Ka-ka-croak-ka," the crow cackled, and the cheese fell to the ground. Clementine lowered her gaze to her feet where the cheese would have been. The fox grabs it and says, "Oh my good friend, "'You must learn that every flatterer lives at the expense of those who listen to him.' "'Clementine raised her hand with index finger pointing up "'and spoke slowly and distinctly with gravity. "'The crow, ashamed and embarrassed, cried out in despair. "'Do not lose heart. My lesson,' said the fox, "'is without doubt worth the value of a piece of cheese.' Clementine put her palms to her temples and shook her head in disbelief. The crow, mortified, swore he would never be fooled again by a flatterer. As family and guests applauded, Madame Levine whispered to Miles, It's a fable every French school child memorizes. Well, she did very well, Madame Levine nodded. Clementine turned and went to sit at the piano bench to open the keyboard cover. Tchaikovsky's theme in Swan Lake," Madame Levine whispered to Miles. Clementine proceeded to play with control and relaxed patience for four minutes, with only two instants of hesitancy. She stood and bowed, beaming with pleasure at the end. As the audience stood, Miles went to Clementine. "Great," he said. After the performance, Miles examined Clementine. Her lungs were clear her temperature normal, and he declared her healthy. He then took the blood pressure of all those in the room and made notes to keep in his bag to compare if he ever saw them again. Sophie led Madame and Miles to the drawing-room, where she served gaufre à la Fumon with coffee. Madame Levine stayed at the chateau to spend more time with her cousins, and Miles began the drive back to Chateau alone. He felt calm and pleased to have witnessed the caring of the family for Clementine and their delight in her performances. Chapter 22. Paris. 1965. Miles and Ingrid worked at their easels facing each other as Bruce worked at a slight distance away at his permanent workstation. That was their Thursday evening painting session. On a canvas, 36 by 48 inches, Ingrid had blocked, with the edge of a palette knife, outlines of horizon, sky, and buildings in the town of Loche, on the Andre River between Chateauroux and Tours. Then she used a sable brush with a pale wash to suggest details of Saint Antoine Tower in front of the Chateau de Loche, further in the background. I like what you're doing. Ingrid said to Miles as she worked. "Well, I'm finally following Bruce's directive. When we first started, trying to get the sunflower yellows right, contrasted to the foliage greens and the sky blues, in that field on the way to Deau." Miles said. "I'm having trouble with my sky." Ah, oh, here. Try a transparent Prussian blue. Bruce tossed Miles a tube of paint. Miles mixed the Prussian blue with titanium white. He held a pallet so Ingrid could see. Uh, what do you think? Might work well, Ingrid said. You might mix a touch of Indian yellow, too. Good thought, Bruce said. They all worked in silence for a few minutes. What's Oliver doing this evening, Bruce asked. Ingrid laid her brush and palette on a stool and wiped her hands on a cloth rag. She closed her eyes with her head down, reluctant to respond. He's been busy, she finally said, at work. He bought that part ownership in the bumpy landing as an investment. It takes a lot of his time. She damped the wetness at the corner of her eye, with a clean corner of her paint rag so no one would notice. Do you have any trips planned? Bruce asked Ingrid. Ingrid stared at the floor, her body tense. Not at the moment... I shouldn't have brought it up, Bruce thought. Things aren't going well. I do have tours on the new arrivals for the military, but no personal plans, Ingrid continued. Let's do a visit to Paris for art, Miles said. Invite your friends. It wouldn't feel right without Ollie, Ingrid said. Of course, ask Ollie, Miles said. Would you and Ida be available? he asked Bruce. Oh, it would be great. We'll book rooms near the Louvre, Miles said, and I can ask Madame Levine if she would like to go. She has family in Paris and knows the art community well. She works in restitution of art stolen by the Nazis, Bruce said. She's amazing. She's intense, Ina said. She'd be perfect, Ingrid said. I know little about the recovery of stolen art. It will give us all an uplift from the blues, Miles said. Madame Levine arrived two days before and stayed with her artist niece, Manon Toussaint, who owned the commercial art gallery. Ingrid, Miles, Bruce, and Dinah arrived Friday afternoon. Oliver had declined the trip. Early on Friday morning, Madame Levine rang a bell at the side of the door of the Jus de Pomme, a museum of art on a corner of the Twillers, which was closed to visitors at that time of day. A museum staff member greeted them. They all entered. Inside, Rose Vallon, the director, emerged from an office, shutting the door behind her. She was petite with short dark hair and round horn-rimmed glasses on a plain face without blemishes. "'and a persistent look of concern and anxiety. "'She looks in her sixties, Ingrid thought without malice. "'She wore a pale beige summer dress "'patterned with small flowers and a large white collar "'and a three-inch black leather belt fastened at the waist. "'Mademoiselle Fallon, I am Manon Toussaint. "'Oh, no, 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 I know who you are. "'We've met, what, four times? "'And of course I know your father.' Uh, This is my cousin, Margot Levine, and her student in French, Ingrid Stern, who lives in Châteauroux at the Airbase, Manon said. And this is Dr. Ballard, who has treated our family. Rose Vallon remained silent for a few seconds, and Ingrid was worried that she had an attitude toward the base and the Americans. But then Mademoiselle greeted her and kissed her on both cheeks, and as Mademoiselle embraced Madame Levine, she said, I still grieve for the loss of your husband at Toul. Thank you. I recently saw a photo of him hang from a lamppost in Toul in an American magazine, Madame Levine said. It brought back so many upsetting memories. What a disgrace, Mademoiselle Vallon said. And the perpetrators at Nuremberg trials are only scratching the surface of the guilty, Madame Levine said. Mademoiselle Vallon showed the guests where paintings damaged by the thefts were being restored. There was another open space where other works of art were being authenticated and researched for the history of their ownership before German occupation of France. Then Mademoiselle invited them to a ceremony at the Louvre. Extensive press coverage and art aficionados packed the Louvre ceremony with a crowd of more than 300 the Minister of French Culture led a ceremony displaying three recently recovered paintings, confiscated by the Nazis in late 1942 and 43, to be returned to their rightful owners. Mademoiselle Vallon was honored, and the minister presented a history of her work in recovery and in her life-threatening work as a spy when Germans stored tens of thousands of historically and artistically valuable paintings in the Jeu de Pomme. She was praised for her continued work with the Monument Men. The minister listed her awards as the most decorated woman in France. That night, the Chateauroux group went to the opera and had a late dinner with Manon. After dinner, Manon asked Ingrid if she would like to stay in Paris for a while in her apartment at her Galerie d'Ar. Ingrid excitedly agreed. The Chateauroux group left the next morning. Ingrid spent more than a week staying in the apartment above Manon's gallery. She learned about the operations of probably the most successful gallery in Paris at the time. As Ingrid prepared to leave, she asked if she could fill in managing sales and inquiries when needed. Of course, Manon said. I'd like that. I hoped you might have interest. And when I come to Paris, Ingrid said, I'd like to be more involved in the recovery of stolen art. I'll personally arrange a meeting for us with Rose Vallon. I know the Ministry of Culture wants to involve Americans. Many paintings have been recovered in the United States. Recovery is an exhausting and time-consuming task. They'll be thankful for your interest. And I'll call you when I visit home next month in Andre, Menon continued. I'd like you to know my family. Ingrid was proud and grateful, and said so. Chapter 23 Mardi Gras Nice, 1965 After the Christmas holidays, Miles received a formal invitation from the Toussaint to stay at Madame Toussaint's brother's home with the family and niece for Mardi Gras. Miles took leave time for a week, and on a Thursday, before Mardi Gras, with Madame Levine, he drove eight hours to a villa, a legacy from previous generations, owned by Madame Toussaint's brother-in-law, Crowder Emhoff. The Emhoffs were not there. They spent February, March, and April vacationing in the Antilles, where they rented a house in Willemstad on the island of Curacao, and on many days sailed their 60-meter yacht among the islands. The Amhoff Art Deco-style two-story villa was built in the early 1920s and stood on a hill in the Mont area. Painted a pale yellow and with off-white columns in the front on both levels, it provided expansive views of the city, the 11th century castle, the promenade, the Mediterranean Sea. In private, Madame Levine made it perfectly clear to Miles that the Toussaint were respected and of modest means compared to the excesses of the brother-in-law, who was indolent and extravagant, she implied. Like to Miles, they all lived so far above his lifestyle, he felt uneasy in their presence for reasons he did not fully comprehend. The next day, Monsieur Toussaint had business with a financial adviser in Monaco, Madame Levine stayed at the villa with Miles and Madame Toussaint, while Clementine, Manon, and Sophie went first to see their grandmother, who lived near the promenade, before they turned to shopping in the city for materials and costumes for Mardi Gras. Clementine chose a hoop skirt dress of green and purple, a white peephole mask, and a sunburst headdress. She picked out a brass sceptre burnished to a glistening sheen. At the villa, Madame Toussaint served breakfast for Miles and Madame Levine of pastries, confiture, fresh fruits, and coffee on the terrace in front of the villa. The view, through clear air, was over the wakening town to where the Mediterranean Sea dovetailed on the horizon with a resonant turquoise sky. Madame tells me you were active in the resistance, Miles said to Madame Toussaint. Oh, that was twenty years ago, Madame Toussaint said. I I was twenty-five years old. Marco was the heroine, Madame Levine flushed at the compliment. The Germans killed their first husband in Toul. It was Sophie Toussaint who carried the messages from German activity to resistance leader, Madame Levine said. She was only twelve and constantly in grave danger. During the day... They watched parades on the promenade des Anglais with dancing women, flowers, cultural and historical themes, and floats with tableau vivant and giant figures of political and cultural celebrities. Teams of trim women in sparse costumes marched and waved flags and banners, wearing garlands and holding bouquets of fresh flowers. Acrobats on six-foot stilts circled the floats. Colossal helium-filled balloons bumped along the route tethered with ropes held and heaved by individual crew members. Marching and walking participants interacted with crowds, greeting and throwing bundles of stemmed blossoms. In the evening, they went to City Central, where high rows of stadium-style seating were situated in the square facing a large open path for the parades. The Toussaints had coveted seats three-quarters of the way up in the stands. The parade started as the sky darkened to night. Soon flares, Roman candles, starbursts, serpentines, and crackers ignited the sky, obliterating the stars. Eighteen floats carry gigantic papier-mâché figures, often articulated, of characters exquisite or grotesque, all brightly illuminated with endless colors of purple, stark gold, forest green on vermilion, crimson, mauve, black on russet, Blood red on cornflower blue. Bands played. Majorettes strutted. Costume riders on horseback wove among the revelers as crew members on the floats threw trinkets and beads from elevated positions. Cannons propelled confetti skyward into the human sounds of merrymaking, frolic, and dance that pulsated through the air. The two with Miles sat in a row of planks seating high up in the stands. Clementine sat on the seat next to the aisle, then Monsieur Toussaint, Madame Toussaint, Manon, Sophie, and Miles. The crowd noise intensified as a float featuring Joan of Arc on horseback at the Battle of Orléans came into view. Clementine, using her father's shoulder for support, stood on the plank seating as two men descended the steps in the aisle next to her. The younger man tripped and fell into the older. The heavy set man lost his balance, falling forward, knocking Clementine off the seat. Clementine plummeted down the stairs in the air head first, hitting a stair and somersaulting into the seats, only to have her momentum thrust her back into the aisles, where she continued to fall to the base of the stairs, where she lay crumpled and silent. Miles was instantly on the move down the row, taking the steps two at a time. Amidst the crowd noise in the stadium, The individuals near the accident were frozen still and silent, unsure of what to do. Miles reached Clementine before anyone could recover from their shock and kneeled at Clementine's side. She was breathing in gasp, without signs of pain. Miles cradled her head between his hands and gently moved it into a straight position with the spine. Her look to him showed more surprise than fear. He spoke to her, raising his voice to be heard above the crowd. Breathe deeply and try not to move. Stay calm. A stranger reached out to straighten her twisted torso. Don't touch her, Miles spoke abruptly. Then he said to Manon, who was now kneeling next to him, Keep them away. Send for an ambulance. Manon called to her father to contact emergency. Dazed, he hurried off to find police authority. An attendant appeared. Miles instructed him to disperse the crowd and all but the immediate family as far away as possible. Sophie reached for Clementine's hand, but Miles told her firmly not to touch her, his tone implying it might cause further damage if the spine was injured. He touched the skin on Clementine's legs, but there was no reaction, no movement. The twisted position of her body indicated spinal injury. He had to keep the body motionless until help arrived with equipment to stabilize her. Now Clementine's moist eyes looked vacantly into the continuous ambulant festival sky. She said nothing, her lips trembling. Thirty minutes later, an emergency crew arrived with the combined expertise and equipment to raise Clementine onto a gurney for transport. The ambulance departed and the Toussaint family gathered to find transportation to the hospital. Miles joined them. Three days later after surgery, the family and Miles were informed of Clementine's paraplegia. It was partial, and it would be months, maybe years, of intense rehabilitation before the degree of improvement could be determined.
1: Chapter 24,
0: Lessons, 1965 In November, on a visit to Clementine for a health care check Miles learned that Clementine's tutor and tour had died and the Tucsons had not found a replacement. At dinner with Oliver and Ingrid, Miles mentioned Clementine's sadness and Ingrid suggested Agnes Coletti. Perfect, if she'll agree to do it, Miles said. Ingrid went into Agnes's house in Brass the next morning. We are very fond of the daughter of the Toussaint's, whose passion is playing piano. She is very talented. Her piano teacher has died, and she's without an expert tutor. Would you consider teaching her? Ingrid asked. I don't like children, Agnes replied. Best thing I ever missed was childbirth and responsibility for a young one. Clementine is not a child, Agnes. She's 11, and from a distinguished family. She is educated and very intelligent. It's not what I want to do, Ingrid. But she's depressed without activity to improve something she really loves. Think of it as therapy for a child with paraplegia who deserves the best and as a favor to me. I would greatly appreciate it. It's too long to drive. "'Major Bonard doesn't like to drive in France. "'Either Miles or I could take you. "'We both want the best for this girl. "'Would you like a glass of wine? "'I've brought a bottle of Montrachet for you.' "'I've never taken to a hard sell, Ingrid. "'Please, Agnes, it would be a good deed. "'I've never been a humanitarian either.' She's a human that needs you. You are the best. Agnes shook her head with incredulity at Ingrid's persistence of persuasion. You'll never regret it, Ingrid said. Agnes frowned for a few seconds and then looked to Ingrid with a perplexed smile of concession. I'll try, she said, but only on a trial. Ingrid leaned forward and kissed Agnes on both cheeks. Miles took Agnes on her first visit to teach Clementine. Grumpy Agnes had little to say. "'You don't seem very excited about this,' Miles said to her in the passenger's front seat. "'I let Ingrid weasel me into it.' "'You could have backed out.' "'Not with Ingrid.' "'This is gracious of you, Agnes. "'Clementine is capable and deserving of the best.' "'Oh, Pooh, you are the best.' Ingrid said that already. You don't have to swizzle me. I'm not a swizzler, Miles said. Knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. Aristotle, isn't it? No, mind. it's the truth. The lesson was in the music room of the chateau. Clementine had a special stool that lifted her higher than normal and a footstool that supported the braces on her legs. She was dressed in a light blue cashmere sweater and a brown wool skirt. She sat on the piano bench, her wheelchair behind her. Agnes stood next to her to be able to see the keyboard and the music on the intricately carved walnut music rack. Oh, good, was all Agnes could allow as praise for Clementine, although she knew her playing was exceptional. You love birds? Agnes asked Clementine. Clementine nodded. You know the Oriole? His song? I do, Clementine thought for a few seconds. Do-da, do-da, she went from high to low, and then up. Do-dee. That's it. Many Oriole breeds use those intervals. Thirds and a fifth. Agnes reached out and closed the music folder on the rack. Now, I don't want you to think about what the notes look like. You remember what the oriole sounds like. Play what you remember. Clementine played what she sang. Do you see the notes on staff? If I think about it. You have close to perfect relative pitch, and I want you to hear and then play. Nothing visual. Ready? Agnes sang a series of eight notes. Without hesitation, Clementine played the notes in the pitch exactly as Agnes had sounded. Agnes repeated other notes in a lower key, and Clementine responded, then in a higher key. Clementine responded again, without any hesitation. Did you visualize those notes on a staff? Clementine shook her head. Oh, not really. That's good. We're going to continue next time. After our classical piece, to work on playing by ear, not by memory of notes on a staff, but creating from imagination. It's an example which many of the classic composers must have learned when writing music inspired by nature. Birds chirping and changing seasons and volatile weather. Listen to Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Where can I find the recording? Clementine asked. I would think in the music store and tour. Do you play jazz? I'm learning. How do you do that? There's a staff sergeant who leaves a combo on bass. He lets me practice with him. Uh, Blues mostly. I learn the harmonics and improvise on the melodies and accent the rhythms. Can I do that? Sophie loves jazz. We could work on it after classical instruction. It would cost more. Would you like that? Oh, yes, Clementine said. We'll include that in the next lesson. Do you have jazz LPs? Sophie does. She goes to nightclubs in Paris. Listen to some of them and tell me what you like best. Well done, Miles said to Agnes on the way home. I've played blues harp for years, mostly to records. Would you introduce me to the Sarge? I believe that's not allowed for commissioned officers, is it? He's a Negro, Agnes said, but with an unusual touch of hesitancy in her voice. We'd be making music, Miles said, not fraternizing. Within three weeks, the Jasmine Jenkins Quartet became the Jasmine Jenkins Quintet with Captain Miles Ballard on blues harp. There were no complaints about race. In September, Ingrid walked to Miles' quarters. Did you know that Agnes is going to marry her major friend, the birdwatcher? Really? a Surprise, isn't it? Who would have thought Agnes marrying? I can't imagine Agnes is a romantic, either. Ingrid smiled. Maybe helping Clementine has made her a better human being. Uh, closer to likable, maybe, Miles said. Ingrid handed him a folded piece of notepaper without an envelope. An invitation she wanted me to give you as soon as possible. Inside the fold of paper, in a too-tightly gripped pen handwriting, Agnes had invited him to her wedding ceremony.
1: Chapter 25
0: Surprise, 1965 Agnes On a late Saturday afternoon, Ingrid went with the Toussaints to Agnes Coletti's wedding to Major Bernard. Miles went straight from work to the pre-ceremony reception. Fifty-seven invitees attended. A raised platform and white-painted folding chairs were arranged on a tendered lawn of the farm of a friend of the Major's. Minutes after Ingrid's arrival, Agnes, breathing determinedly, "'took Ingrid firmly by the arm "'and led her to the edge of the crowd "'where they couldn't be heard. "'I'm calling the wedding off,' Agnes said. "'Ingrid couldn't think of a response. "'Agnes carried on. "'I'm going to announce it before the ceremony. "'Does Major Bernard know?' "'Not yet.' "'He's got to know,' Ingrid said. "'You just can't surprise him at the altar.' "'I haven't told anyone.' Why are you doing this? Is it just being in France, the isolation, not knowing the language? Agnes was lost to tell her feelings. He doesn't talk to me when we're alone, she thought. He's getting old, she said. Everyone is. Not like him. He doesn't have the energy to make new friends. His memory is gone. He vegetates. His emotions are a flat line. I'm ashamed of how I feel, but it never ceases to irritate me. "'He's depressed?' Ingrid asked, feeling the source of Agnes's actions. "'I would be his caretaker, not his companion. "'What would you do?' Ingrid thought for a few seconds, sympathetic with Agnes's dilemma. "'Do what you feel is right, Agnes. What are you planning?' "'A new life in Paris. "'I now have friends in the music community "'and I'm going to teach piano and organ. "'I'll play in a cathedral, "'and I've been asked to play and teach daily "'in the workshop of an internationally famous organ maker. "'Is this your real reason for backing out?' "'Well, I was planning to take him with me to Paris, "'but I don't think I could stand it.' "'Then you must tell him, Agnes, before your announcement.' Couldn't I just uh, leave? That's not right. I could leave a note. Look, dismiss the priest. Tell the quartet to play for two hours more. Then take the major with you to the platform and gather the audience and tell them. Agnes paused. I'm losing my nerve. You can't wait, Ingrid said. And you're the one to do it. Believe that you're doing the right thing for both of you. Agnes trudged off. Agnes found the Major coming out of a porta potty. She blurted out her decision, avoiding explanations that tumbled inexpressibly in her mind. The Major shrugged. Is that all you can say? Agnes said with a flare of anger. I've been expecting it, he said. Really? ''We're not alike, Agnes. It would be a mistake to marry,'' he said without passion. ''Well, I'm glad to have that straightened out. Let's get this over with, then,'' she turned to start toward the platform. But the Major stopped her and took her hand. I'll ''Relax,'' he said. ''Look composed.'' He led her calmly to the podium with a microphone. He squeezed her hand when she tried to let go. Agnes took a deep breath to begin her confession. "Uh, "'Thank you all for coming,' she said timidly, but the Major interrupted and addressed the crowd with the force of command of a general. "'Attention, please,' he said. "'Gather round. We have an important announcement to make.' Without urgency the crowd began to move, and the Major repeated his announcement two more times so all would hear. Then, with the crowd gathered, he still had not released Agnes's sweaty palm. He thanked all for coming this afternoon, thanked them for their friendship. He hoped their understanding would keep friendships as sustainable as they have always been. We have an announcement, he said, pausing and gazing over the crowd. We've decided not to marry. A silence ensued. Agnes was thankful that she heard no gasp. "'then worried why there had been none. "'Agnes and I are the best of friends "'and always will be,' the Major said. "'We wish the best to all of you, our friends. "'We love you all. "'Please enjoy the music and the party. "'Stay for as long as you want.' "'After faint applause, Agnes spoke, "'her voice high and strained. "'The bar is open until the last person leaves,' she said. "'When you do leave, please take the food with you. "'We'd feel terrible if it wasn't enjoyed. "'Bye.' "'She waved like a child going off to summer camp. "'The Major helped Agnes down from the platform, "'dropped her hand, and they separated. "'Agnes went to Ingrid. "'How did it go?' "'Fine,' Ingrid said. "'I didn't expect him to speak.' but he did well, don't you think? You both did well. Ingrid thought Agnes's exhilaration was poorly timed. Could we have our usual lunch tomorrow at the restaurant, Agnes asked? Of course, Ingrid said. That's great. Agnes turned to a group of friends to face questions she did not have answers for.
1: Chapter 26. Bob Goggin and the
0: General. 1965. The General took Bob Goggin to Scotland as his lawyer, ostensibly for official consultations about air strength and U.S. support for the United Kingdom if attacked. The meeting was in London, but the General and high-ranking officers had reservations at the old course at St. Andrews after the meeting. The General played golf poorly and usually surrounded himself with quality players to detract from his inadequacies. On the return trip, Goggin saw an empty seat next to the general, vacated by an aide who had gone to the bathroom. Goggin rushed forward and sat down. "Uh, "'What's up, Goggin?' the general said. "'Well, sir, uh, I wondered if you were aware of what happened to Captain Ballard.' "'Of course. He is my private physician, for Christ's sake.' "'And you guys were friends? I'm sorry he left the service.' "'Well, yes, sir. And I was also his lawyer at his court-martial for insubordination that ignored the lives he saved and the thousands he healed.' The aide came back down the aisle toward the general. The general raised his hand and pointed a finger at an empty seat a few rows away. "'So what do you want?' the general asked. Miles wasn't treated well by the Air Force, sir. He was acquitted, yes, sir, after an appeal, but he was harassed by a few officers who thought him guilty of insubordination. Officers who are the best friends of the colonel who brought the charges. The general knew all the circumstances of the court-martial, and Gogwin was well aware that the general didn't like Springer, personally or professionally. Miles was the best GMO we've ever had, sir. He was loved by patients. He devised programs. He persisted in follow-up. He formed a research project on suicide. Ah, get on with it, Goggin. Well, sir, Miles found a surgical residency program at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, not up to his satisfaction. He has applied to schools of public health. He wants to work broadly in the delivery and support of health care in general. Because of his service in France, he never had the opportunity to develop contacts in the field who might write him the outstanding letters of recommendation he deserves. Ah, uh, That's what you want? A recommendation? He treated you. He's kept me alive. Treated your daughter. Never push it with a family Goggin. That's personal. Would you write him a letter of support based on his integrity, his skills, work ethic, personality, while medically serving in the Air Force in France? You can't be asking me that. I treat all personnel the same, and I don't write letters of recommendation to medical schools. Yes, sir, I understand. But I've got a list of schools and appropriate individuals, addresses, bios, just in case you might have the opportunity. Goggin pulled out a folded piece of typing paper with his handwriting and eased it into the general's hand. Goggin, you are beyond belief. Did Ballard put you up to this? Absolutely not, sir. You know he's not like that. But you are, aren't you? Well, the answer's no, and never mention this conversation to anyone, for your own sake. The general frowned as he worked hard to absently tuck Goggin's folded paper into his inside coat pocket. Thank you, sir, Goggin said. Be warned, Goggin. I'll do nothing with this. It's not my place. It's inappropriate. Yes, sir. Goggin stood to retake his previous seat, and the aide quickly repositioned himself beside the general as Goggin walked down the aisle. He'd gotten further than he ever imagined with the general, and he was pleased to believe the general would help if he could. Part 5 Chapter 27 Destiny 1966, Boston Ingrid now worked full-time at Manon Toussaint's gallery, titled Dardar in Paris, on Newberry Street in Boston. She lived in a third-floor apartment in the gallery, had her office as manager on the first floor, and oversaw seven staff. Early on a Monday morning, before customers became numerous, Ingrid sat at her desk she had rearranged to where she could watch the front door to personally greet customers. Emily Lodge entered timidly, opening the door. "'Ingrid hit her face with her hand "'and went to a cabinet under the stairs "'to the second level to appear busy. "'She never wanted to see Emily again. "'Too late. "'Emily rushed forward and cornered her. "'Ingrid Stern, you look wonderful.' "'Ingrid felt a sharp pain in her chest at seeing Emily "'and searched for words. "'She avoided a greeting.' "'Her memories of Emily and France didn't allow a warm reception. "'May I help you?' she asked. "'I'm the manager. Mrs. Batten, isn't it?' "'I've never used that name, Ingrid. Lodge will do. "'And please call me Emily.' Or "'May I show you the gallery?' "'I love Dardar, a favorite gallery,' Emily said. "'At first, as they began the tour,' Ingrid instinctively avoided any hint of camaraderie. She showed Emily around the gallery for more than an hour with an aloof formality, until she was convinced of a different Emily than she remembered. You seem to know the collection, Ingrid said as they stood near the exit door. I come to the gallery every few months. It is one of the galleries on my list to visit as a board member. I've never seen you, Ingrid said. You've changed your desk. You saw me when I came in. Ingrid softened. I'm glad you did, Emily. I enjoyed the visit. I've always worried about meeting again. The memories of my action in France. I was so unwell. Ingrid waited for Emily to continue. I was clinically depressed, Ingrid. I remembered what you had said about my life. I went into therapy hospitalized for two months with sessions twice a week after I was released. I still take Librium. Are you divorced? Parker, more than two years ago. My analyst said my marriage was a major contributor to my illness. Oh, my. Emily grabbed her shoulder bag. I've got to go. Doctor's appointment. Could we have dinner together tonight? I'd like that, Ingrid said sincerely. That evening they dined together at Durgan Park. And now I'm estranged from Mother, who has refused to be civil to me since the divorce and tried to prevent me from marrying Lionel, Emily said. I still feel occasional guilt about disliking my mother, but without her I have more confidence. I've made a circle of friends, my own friends, and Lionel's perfect for me. "'a professor at Boston University College of Fine Arts, "'not rich middle class, and that drove mother to distraction. "'You can't marry beneath you,' she yelled, "'which made me all the more eager to begin life in my own way. "'I'm so glad you're better, Emily,' Ingrid said. "'What about you? Have you remarried?' "'I didn't realize how unhappy I'd been "'until I wasn't married anymore,' Ingrid said. My ex-husband was court-martialed for dealing drugs, spent a year in prison, and was dismissed without honor from the service. He practices somewhere in Idaho now. What happened to all your friends from France? We have a round-robin letter we circulate for everyone to add to throughout the year. Your husband was a doctor at the base, wasn't he? He was my mother's Shadkin selection, and we did well for four years but he was so openly unfaithful, it became demeaning. H- have you found someone else? Mother found a prospect for me, again with a Jewish ad But he's much older than I, shy, insecure, educated but dull, and I've given up on him, and I don't see him anymore, and Mother and I don't speak to each other. They talked over dinner for more than three hours. As they were leaving, Emily said, "'I forgot to ask. "'Do you do acquisitions for the gallery, too?' "'60%. "'Mostly American, some Canadian, "'but the Canadian quality isn't as desirable for us. "'The owner, Manon, "'has the most valuable contacts in Europe, "'and she ships stock every three to four weeks. "'We're doing a good business.' "'You're well-respected for your eye quality.' Thanks. Manone has been a friend and a teacher. I learned buying and management from her in Paris. When I see what you've done, would you permit me to place your name for a position on the Acquisitions Committee at the Museum of Fine Arts? Am I qualified? More than qualified with your studies and experience, and the board would be especially interested in your work with restoring Nazi art thefts to their original owners. "'I met Mademoiselle Ballon many times in Paris, "'and Manon and I helped recover two paintings "'and a sculpture from Germany and a painting from Italy. "'May I propose you as a committee member?' "'Please do,' Ingrid answered, warm with pleasure. "'Emily and Ingrid became friends. "'Emily accompanied Ingrid on a buying trip to Montreal. "'They worked together at the MFA.' They attended concerts and lectures. Ingrid wrote to Miles, now still in New Orleans, out of the military, and intent on finding a new career other than surgery for himself. Dear Miles, you can't imagine how much Emily has changed. It's remarkable. She is now estranged from her mother, and finally her mother is out of her life, as recommended by her analyst. She does see her father once a week. I've met him twice. "'and genuinely like him. "'Her new husband is a little wonky at times "'about political opinions "'and never misses a Red Sox game, even away games. "'But Emily doesn't seem to mind. "'They love each other, and I'm happy for her. "'Excited that you're playing blues harp "'with street bands in New Orleans. "'Would love to hear you play. "'I wrote to Agnes often. "'She made the right decision not to marry.' She is giving lessons on piano and organ in Paris and, with her near-perfect relative pitch and skills, is paid by restorers to help tune organs, especially the older ones. She has many friends and speaks French very well now. She has no contact with the bass, but visits the Toussaint's twice a month to help Clementine with her progress. Emily has plans for a trip to Paris with a few friends for two weeks. She and Lionel are paying for airfare and lodging. I know she will ask you, and I hope you'll be able to go. Miles was still working at Charity Hospital, but gave notice as he awaited responses from public health residency programs at UCLA, Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, Harvard, Columbia, and Tulane. He was anxious about his chances. He received a handwritten invitation from Emily and Lionel within days. He called to thank her personally and, apprehensive about her motives, when she met him for the last time at Châteauroux, to sense her new disposition. She had changed. He wasn't sure who she really was now, but there was no doubt; she was a different person. After a few hesitant moments on the phone from both. He doubted any awkwardness would come from Emily. She assured him that he would be on his own with time in Paris to visit friends from his time in service. In late May, Miles flew to Boston Logan to transfer to the transatlantic flight to Paris that Emily and Lionel had arranged. He saw Ingrid for the first time in more than two years when boarding the flight. His ever-present affection for her swelled inside him, and he greeted her with warmth and camaraderie. At the Paris Hotel, all travelers were making arrangements for dinner. Ingrid asked Miles if he were free. He smiled widely with a boost of vitality. Where do you want to go, he asked. She suggested Le Grand Four, that had three Michelin stars, served exquisite food, and was within walking distance of the hotel. They were seated facing each other at a table for two next to a mirrored wall that reflected views from windows to the exterior. It's been way too long, Ingrid said. I'm so glad to see you, she repeated for the second time since they'd met. You haven't changed in the least, Miles said. What did you expect? My memories. We had wonderful times together, art at Bruce's and I's, the trips. "'Thank God for your letters. "'And you for yours. "'How are things at the gallery? "'It's special working for Manon. "'I'm in charge now, "'and she spends much of her time with her family in athee. "'Sophie wrote me that Clementine is mobile now "'with braces and crutches,' Miles said. "'I spent a weekend every month with the family "'until I left,' Ingrid said. Manona's doing bronze sculpture in Paris. She's made me a part owner in Boston. We have a staff of twelve now. Twelve? Miles asked. That includes restorers and framers and appraisers, marketing and sales, and we have more than fifty contributing artists and requests to show from hundreds of others. I'm pleased for you. Do you go to New York often to see family? My family ignores me, Miles. I haven't been an ideal daughter. Divorced, barren, blamed for a hysterectomy before I was 20 to remove a tumor, threatening exsanguination. Mother looks everywhere for someone suitable. She found a widowed Jew at synagogue in his 60s, desperate for a wife after his second wife died. He was short, bearded, misogynist, and mostly noncommunicative. I refused. Mother never forgave me. What about you? What's happening? Well, it's strange. The residency in New Orleans was all operating. Sixteen-plus hours on, eight off for weeks at a time. No academics, no research. But I love the city. Food, music, atmosphere, art, hard-working people. When I could get a break— I'd second line in a funeral parade just to share the joy of taking their dead comrade to the next world. They truly believe that Jesus will welcome them in the hereafter, where the blues don't get you, where you get weekends off, and people really seem to love each other. Are you leaving because of surgery? I do want to do something different. I think it's being a doctor who is always on call, treating one person after another. It's mechanical an assembly line of human suffering. You just put them back together anatomically and physiologically as best you can with what you have. You think of all the souls as you never have chances to heal and you never have enough help or resources to do your best. What is it that Emily's mother said about you? Ah, uh, his time and his brain are taken up with working on his Humpty Dumpties or something like that. I really want to work with healthcare systems and deliver quality health care equally for everyone. And I want time for myself. Develop as a human being who cares rather than a mechanic who repairs. We did help people in France, didn't we? Ingrid said. Miles nodded. And the military. But it's France that I miss. Do you? Oh, yes. Vibrant times in an artistic culture. We were so fortunate. Would you go back? I don't have the finances now, but I will go back. I dream about it. I miss the French way of life, Ingrid said, and the people who live it. Madame Levine, the Toussaint's. And Clementine is an elegant young lady now. She thanks you. I'd like to see her and the family, the friends from Chateauroux. And Alice? Oh, yes. I haven't heard details about her relationship with Antoine for a while. In fact, I'm renting a car and leaving tomorrow to visit friends in Chateauroux. Really? I was going to take the train. Go with me. It would be great having you. Wonderful, Ingrid smiled, her brain filled with exciting images of her next few days with Miles. They stayed three nights with the Toussaint's. They took Clementine to a festival at the Chateau de Chaumor. Clementine used a wheelchair for the visit but spent most of her regular days ambulatory with crutches. On the second night, they had dinner with Alice. Antoine wasn't available. Alice had completed her book on the war and submitted it to a publisher. Ingrid said she was still working on her book on the Holocaust. Alice seemed withdrawn. Miles glanced at Ingrid to let her know how he felt about Alice's distress. "'Is everything okay between you and Antoine?' Ingrid asked gently. "'Oh, of course. Although his mother died, I rarely see him because of the political ambitions in Paris. I'm busy writing for an American press, and I live mostly with mother and father. My sister ran off with a staff sergeant. Antoine's family doesn't really like me. What is the effect of the U.S. military leaving France, Miles asked. Almost no presidents now. The general is being transferred to Vietnam next month. Mother will go back to the States. Are you going to stay here? Alice paused, her eyes dampened with emotion. I, I don't know. Antoine is waiting till after the election. He knows he won't win and plans to spend more time on the farm. And you like farm life? It's not that. Antoine is impenetrable most of the time. He loves me in his way. He knows no other way. His life has been without serious emotions. I'm beginning to think I need something more. Maybe I'll go back to the States with Mother. Was he changed by the war, Alice? I mean, with the police escaping to South America, Miles asked. "'I've begun to doubt his denial of involvement again. "'I think he still anguishes over his involvement in the war. "'He rejects charges of violence, "'but I think he's unwilling to remember the past. "'We have an opaque curtain between us "'to keep us from confronting things we have both buried.' "'More wine?' Miles asked Alice. "'Please,' Alice said. "'Miles signaled the garçon.' Alice said Madame Lavina and her husband had sold a boulangerie and had retired to southeastern Spain. Miles wrote down the address as he and Ingrid departed the dinner. "'I don't want this trip to end,' Miles said. He led Ingrid to a wrought-iron seat for two, away from the path overlooking the Cher River. "'Can you arrange more time off before the flight back?' "'How long,' she asked. Ten days, maybe two weeks.' Leave on the 28th? We can make it a travel vacation. Portugal. The French Alps. She took his hand and put her head on his shoulder. I have hope for something like this. She kissed him on the cheek. They spent two days in aix en provence Miles, out of courtesy and respect, booked separate rooms for each of them. On the second night... Miles heard the connecting door open to his unlocked room in the haze of his late sleep. The bed shimmered as Ingrid sat on the down quilt. Miles, she said. Hmm, he said. He felt her breathing, the scent of her absorbing him. The cover unfolded back as softly as a cloud slipping over a mountain range, and she was beside him. Without speech, he held her his heart kneading in his chest, with a gentle firmness as to never let her go. They made love slowly, every touch a pleasure, every whisper a rapture, their dreams united, their souls as one. They had breakfast in the room in silence the next morning, smiling and gazing at each other. They drank coffee on a sofa holding hands. A walk? Ingrid asked. He kissed her on the lips. They dressed and walked a five-mile trail through the forest to a plunge waterfall splashing into a punchbowl pond. They couldn't let go of each other. Dehydrated from the exercise, they lifted water from the pond to their mouths with cupped hands, the water leaking through the cracks among fingers. They carried on in still silence, communicating a love they had both longed for. They returned to the hotel, hungry and happy. They ate an early supper in the restaurant and went to bed in his room together. He held her. I love you, he said. She cried happy tears and undressed for bed. The next morning as they packed to leave for the States, Ingrid said fretfully, What are we going to do, Miles? I don't want to go on living without you. It's been too long already. He stopped packing. We've got to figure something out. I'll have to change my plans for school. No, no, you can't do that. I'd feel guilty, and you'd always wonder what could have been, and would it have been better? I could ask Manon about opening a branch of Dardar Dar where you settle. I can't let you do that, Miles said. She cheered and crossed the room to hold him. We can work something out. Have faith. I will, I promise, he said. They returned to Boston on the same flight. Arrival mid-morning, and while Miles waited for his connection to New Orleans, Ingrid sat with him. They enjoyed the special awareness of being together again, a blessing, but avoid talking about how they might erase the physical gap between them until plane was ready to board. What can we do? Ingrid asked. "'Maybe I could ask Manon to find me work in New Orleans. "'Maybe I could find a teaching position in Boston. "'I could do academics. "'Or maybe a miracle will happen "'and I'll get into a public residency close to you. "'I won't lie. "'I'm anxious about my chances. "'But anything's possible. "'You have so much to give.' "'He gazed into her eyes. "'Don't you think it's time we got married?' A cry of joy escaped her. Loud enough, the passengers turned their head. They embraced as if to bury themselves forever in a clasp of mutual caring. We'll work it out some way, she said. In New Orleans, Miles took a taxi directly to the hospital to work a night shift for a friend. The next morning, he returned to his second floor apartment in the French Quarter. His landlady heard him squeezing his bag through the door and brought him two weeks of unopened mail she'd collected to prevent theft while he was gone. an Armful, scattered among the bills and advertisements, letters from university were easily spotted by the official envelopes. He tore open the glued flaps one by one. UCLA, Johns Hopkins, and Maryland had turned him down. Tulane, Columbia, and Harvard had accepted him he called Ingrid long distance. I'm coming to Boston. When? Can I pick you up at the airport? Not today. I mean I'm moving to Boston. I don't understand. Harvard accepted me. I'll be in school in Boston. Ingrid
1: cried with joy.
0: This is the end of the novel Tour of Duty by William H. Coles. To read more short stories, novels, and nonfiction about how to write creative stories, go to storyandliteraryfiction.com.